Hello, beautiful people. You are listening to the Communal Table Podcast, part of Food & Wine Pro. I am Kat Kinsman, your host, and my guest today is really just one of the most brilliant people I have the pleasure of knowing. And uh, y'all, listen to what she has to say today. You cannot take it as official legal advice. I just feel like I have to caveat that up front. But uh, should you happen to be in her counsel, you would be uh, an incredibly lucky person. Hello, restaurant lawyer Jasmine Moy. Hi, thanks for having me. I am so thrilled to have you here today. And, you know, people who are working in restaurants run into all kinds of unexpected things all the time. They just want to be in there cooking their food, you know, welcoming the guests and stuff. But it is a trickier proposition than I think most people would, uh, would know. Even if they've worked in restaurants, they've never had to see the nitty gritty, especially if they're opening up their own place. So I I would love to get to know a little bit more about that process so our audience can benefit from your knowledge. Sure, sure. Well, let's talk a little bit first about how did you pick restaurant law? Um, you know, I was a, a miserable corporate litigation attorney. <laughs> I knew you then. So, I mean, I feel like all of those words are, are, are used in the same sentence a lot. Um, representing, you know, pharmaceutical companies whose drugs killed people and people who, who, you know, worked with Bernie Madoff and on and on. It was like a parade of horribles. Um, <laughs> I love it. But, you know, was doing that work and was, was really unhappy with it and had grand visions of quitting my job and traveling the world. And, and maybe I was like, oh, maybe I could write about this and make some money. And um, so took a travel writing class at NYU. It was literally how to be a travel writer and had a, a wonderful teacher named David Farley who was very... Oh, he's great. He's wonderful. Yeah, he writes a lot for the New York Times and a far magazine and things like that. And uh, he was very like, anybody can can be a writer. You know, you just have to have ideas. And I was eating out at a lot of restaurants. Mm -hmm. I've waited tables my entire life, waited tables all through law school even. And um, I was like, oh, you know, I, I eat and out out enough that I feel like I have ideas for trend pieces and, you know, vegetables I'm seeing in a lot of salads or certain tinctures I'm seeing in a lot of cocktails. And I started pitching these stories and uh, people were buying them. So then all of a sudden I was just like hybrid litigation attorney, food writer. Because, I, yeah, I remember I, I met you during that and I yes, was thinking like, exactly. okay, wait, let me put this all together. You're a lawyer, but you're a food writer and, I, and you know, and we would see each other at events and had a lot of friends in common mm -hmm. and got to be friends. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I was meeting all these chefs and eventually they were like, you know, why aren't you a lawyer for chefs? And I was like, I don't think that's a thing. <laughs> and they were like, no, 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 it's, it's actually honest to God a thing and I, you know, started looking into people who did this work in New York. I mean, New York is one of the few places, I think, in the country where you can honest to God make a full living living on this kind of work, you know, restaurants are opening and closing, you know, 100, 100 a day, it feels like. And um, so, yeah, so I got a job with a, a local attorney who was doing that work and worked for him for several years. But over that time, I had a really wide network. I knew a lot yeah. of people. I knew all these food writers. They knew chefs. And uh, so I was building my own sort of book of business. And eventually I had enough to go out on my own. And I've been on my own for, uh, I guess, three years now, maybe a little bit more. Yeah. So... So how does a chef or, or restaurateur know at what point do they bring you in? Um, you know, it's it's funny because I have a lot of people who I know who, for example, maybe signed a lease mm -hmm. without uh, looking for an attorney, especially if they were like self-funded or sort of self-funded. If they got, you know, if they saved money, got money from parents, you know, father-in-law, whatever the situation is, um, where you know, you trust all the people who are involved. And then, you know, maybe you, you look at a lease, and you're like, I can't really negotiate this, I'm going to sign it, or I don't want to pay $3,000 for someone to look at this. They sign it. And then, you know, they start to have problems. You know, they right. realize, uh, you know, the, the building changed hands, they knew their old landlord, they don't know their new landlord, now there are problems. Um, or, 
you know, they're they're divorcing. And oh my gosh, you know, my wife and I put equal money into this and now we're divorcing and we didn't have a partnership agreement. So now there's nothing to tell us how we separate amicably. Um, so, so sometimes a lot of people will make a mistake, run into problems, and then they're like, oh, now we understand why we maybe should have paid a lawyer to do this in the first place. Um, and then some people have heard those stories from other people. And they're the ones who are like, no, I'm going to do this up front. I'm going to decide I'm going to hire an attorney. But I mean, you should almost never sign a lease without having an attorney look at it. And if you're opening a restaurant, signing a lease is one of the first things you do. So probably at the very, very beginning stages or when you raise money, the partnership agreement, I do a lot of that work. And it's really important to have that in writing with your investors. Oh, my gosh. I've seen those unravel in such a messy, mm -hmm. messy way. And I'm thinking of one case in particular that I know that you you worked on and they hadn't uh, – they hadn't negotiated all this stuff up front, and I think they had been good friends for a long time, mm -hmm. and the unnodding of it was like a divorce. Yeah, yeah, it is. With it the is. same emotions, with, you know, all of that, and it was, you know, it can, I, I, I get the sense that engaging your services early um, forestalls a lot of pain, and some people might balk at the at that money, thinking, okay, you know, do you encounter that a lot, where people are like, well, I'm I'm just getting started out, I don't really have the money, I can, you know, my my cousin looked at LegalZoom or what, whatever it happened to be. Yeah, that happens a lot, and I'm really sympathetic to that, and I feel like I try to offer as many sort of flexible payment schedules. I was like, if you want to pay me over in installments over however many months, I said, but you know, I I feel so uncomfortable having you do this without me doing this or without someone helping you with this and I don't say that I, I don't want this to be taken the wrong way but I feel like I scare people into feeling afraid to do this without an attorney and I'm not mm -hmm. doing it for my own benefit I'm doing it for theirs I'm saying hey without doing all of this work in advance without paying someone to do this here are the here are the myriad issues that you could run into and that I have seen happen some right. of them more than once even though they sound like edge cases. They're not. Um, so yeah, I mean, I do a lot of, do you, do you want to take that risk? You can take the, here's, here's the risk. Let <laughs> right. me tell you, let me explain to you all the ways things can go around, how expensive it ends up being. And I can point to things in the news, things in the media, you know, public divorce, business divorces that people mm -hmm. have read about. And I was like, you know, that person probably spent $100,000 fighting that. I said, so, you know, it sort of makes the $5,000 up front feel paltry um, in comparison. So, I, you know, I, I, I let them know mm -hmm. and let them weigh the risks and they always come back and say, no, you're right. We, we should do this the right way. So Right. And and it's not just leases and things. I've seen you work with people to say they want to go on reality television or maybe, you know, write a, write a book or something like mm -hmm. that. So those are the kinds of cases that you encounter as well. Sure. Yeah. You know, the, the I love chefs and I'm like not a very good cook. So I really highly appreciate the work that they do and the creativity that is part of, of their, their work. Um, but I have to say, people who spend their time in the kitchen they just want to be in the kitchen they don't want to be thinking about you know licensing their the rights to their name image and, and likeness they don't want to be thinking about some of the weird sort of amorphous legal issues they just want to do what they do but the reality is I've seen a lot of people being taken advantage mm -hmm. of because they just sign documents without having somebody look at them and you know all of a sudden you've got brands using your photos of you in ways you didn't anticipate but 
that you didn't protect yourself from in the document. And you've got a lot of stuff that happens after the fact, or you sign a contract and then all of a sudden you realize you signed a lot more rights away. You know, you've signed some exclusivity, something or other that you didn't really agree with. So now you're stuck with some production company you don't actually like, but you can't go talk to someone else. So, you know, it, that sort of falls out in a lot of different ways. But yes, I mean, I, what I try to do is protect the chefs across the board, no matter what their venture is and no matter what enterprise they're entering into. Yeah, that makes so very much sense. So let's take a case, say someone wants to open a restaurant mm-hmm. and they, you know, it, whether it's their first one, their second one, they want to branch out on their own. They want to do it in a different way with different partners. Let's talk through that process. Say like, you know, I, hey, I have this great idea for a new concept. Um, maybe I'll need partners. Maybe I won't. Um, where do we go from there? Uh like I said, usually people start looking for spaces. So mm-hmm. in many cases, a real estate broker that they know might be the first call they have because it can yes. take people – I've seen it take people two years to find a space that, that they love. Especially but in, in New York City. I'm yeah. married to a real estate person. I know this very, very well. <laughs> um, so, you know, people sort of start looking for spaces for a while. But at the same time, you should be looking for money. You know, if you're a chef and maybe you're an exec chef somewhere at a, at a you know, more famous chef's restaurant, you should be walking the dining room. If you're a SOM, you should be getting to know people. You should be handing out your number. You should be networking. You should be finding the people who might believe in you and make good partners for you because you're very likely going to have to raise money. Um, you know, it'll, it even opens sort of a mid-sized to small restaurant in New York. It's going to cost anywhere between, you know, $700,000 to a million and a half dollars. And most people don't have that money. Um, so they have to get that from somewhere. So, you know, you should be looking for spaces. You should be talking to people and putting a good business plan together where you s- presenting your concept, to figuring out how much you're going to charge for that food, and in turn figuring out how much you can afford for rent. So, I mean, sometimes that stuff works backwards. Once you've done all of that footwork, then you call me because then I'm the person who sort of gets all of that executed. Once you find the space, you want to jump on it. You've got to get the money in immediately. So all of that happens in a very short time frame. And that's what I'm helping with is negotiating your lease, making sure that your architect is, you know, is has has reviewed your space. You're doing due diligence on it, making sure there's no open Department of uh, Buildings violations on it that are going to cause you problems trying to get your, your restaurant built. Um, talking to your investors, figuring out how... Uh, you're distributing distributing your profits from your restaurant. You know, all of the sort of nuts and bolts of of what happens with the money, how to get into the space, how to be building, and how to set forth a really good relationship with your investors so that everybody understands, um, you know, the vision and, and how it is you want to make happen what you make happen. So is there a difference between an investor and a partner? No. Okay, so that's interchangeable term there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, most of these um, companies are limited liability companies. Um, You're all members in a company. You're all partners. In the tax situation, a a partnership has a very particular tax term. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would say that all investors are are partners. You know, they're in this with you. They should be partners. They should feel like partners, even if they don't have a lot of say in how you run your business or even if they don't have voting rights. You still want them to feel – um, and, you know, obviously a, a partner who maybe you're running with all day, every day, who maybe is not putting in money is somebody who say, oh, that's my partner. But yeah, I would consider those terms interchangeable. Okay. And what do you think? There are a lot of chefs, you know, I always ask chefs, like, what's your title? What's whatever. A lot of chef partner mm-hmm. um, and a lot of just chefs. So are most chefs partners at their restaurants? 
Uh, you know, my argument is that they should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying that just because I mostly represent chefs. Right. Um, but I think we've all seen anywhere in the country you see these restaurants where someone maybe put on all the money, decided to build this thing. Uh, you know, maybe they have a, uh, you know, an, an affinity for interior design. They build this little pet project and then they go on Craigslist and then they hire a chef from somewhere and they say, oh, um, you know, my mom is is Greek and my dad is Japanese, so I want some Greek-Japanese restaurant. And you've got some chef being like, all right, if you're going to pay me a salary, I'll do this for you. But there's no passion. There's nothing There's nothing right. about that. And you, and those restaurants open and close. Those are the ones that are opening and closing, let's be honest. Oh. Because, because you go in and, and everybody gets it. Everybody gets that, like, nobody knows what they're doing. Everybody gets that there's no, like, heart behind the food that they're serving. You know, maybe the restaurant just look, looks crazy. You know, the owner loves it, but maybe... Maybe everybody else thinks it looks terrible. Um, they don't have a sense for service. So I do think um, when a chef is a partner, it is a recipe for a much more successful restaurant, right? You've got the person who's serving the food, who's who's invested, who cares because they get paid or don't get paid upon whether, you know, based upon whether their food is good and the service is wonderful. So you want them to have a stake in it and, and, and without giving them ownership they're just some salaried employee who shows up and does the job, right? There's no incentive to do more. Right. And often is the person who is overseeing front of house, do they have a stake in it as well? Should they say you're, uh, you know, a, a maitre d', a GM, a, a something like that, do they often have a stake in the restaurant as well? You know, they, they do in many, in many. I, I think what's very common is maybe a chef. Um, knows that they don't know anything about front of house, but they know someone who does and that maybe those people are like the operating partners. They get together and maybe the two of them raise money to open something. I see that a lot. Um, I also see, you know, chef owners who hire really good GMs and maybe you incentivize them in different ways. Maybe you offer them a percentage of the profit from the restaurant. Maybe you say, hey, I'd like to give you equity, but how about you work with me for a few years first and then I'll I'll bring you on or we'll get you on some vesting schedule. So I think, I mean, but the same, this, I think the same rule applies for the chefs is that you are going to get a better service. You're going to get a better product if you've got someone who has reason to care deeply about, about, every aspect of what's happening in the, in the restaurant. Well, let's talk about partnerships. Mm-hmm. So who you're going into business with. Yeah. We, we recently ran a story by Amelia uh, Zadok-Sawyer about, you know, who she and, and her husband have opened a gazillion fantastic restaurants. Mm-hmm. And she was talking about the kinds of partners that you do and don't want. And she was saying, don't go into business with family. And uh, she was saying that c- celebrities actually are tend to be really good partners on things. But, uh, you know, she then um, she was saying, like, the people who are sort of like chef groupies are not great people to be partners with. So can we walk through that? Like, what makes an ideal partner? Um, you know, this is such a good question. Uh, it's you had said that it's it's marriage, and I and I say this to people all the time. I said this is marriage, but without the sex, more Ideally. often than not. Ideally, <laughs> um, so so you know what you want, and and I think most of my chef clients would say, oh yeah, the the celebrity is interesting because they have a lot of money. They're too busy to micromanage you. They just they'll get the check when they get the check, right? So, people who have an insane amount of money for whom this is a drop in the bucket. Those are the ideal investors, right? They're not going to be on top of you breathing down your neck saying, hey, I want quarterly reporting. Hey, I saw how much you spent on tomatoes last month. Um, I think that's too much. I think you should start getting your tomatoes from like Cisco or or something sort of ridiculous like that. That happens. Like a lot of that micromanagey stuff, the impatience happens when you've got people who 
are taking a much bigger financial gamble personally. You know, the people mm-hmm. who so so you know you want to look for sort of the richest investors ever, and right. and to the extent that it's also inv- I, I guess go both ways on this. But if the investor is someone who has a lot of restaurant experience, that can be extremely valuable because they can maybe bring more insight. They've got a higher level of you know operational expertise, perhaps. On the flip side, that's maybe the person who's going to be looking at your books because they get the books. They understand them. They see where your inefficiencies are. And maybe you're going to say, hey, that's efficiency by design. It's really important to me to get this meat from this one certain farmer, even though it's 2x what I might be getting it for somewhere else. So, um, But I think by and large, you want to find people who you've you've known for a while, who you feel like you know, uh, who, who feel like know your skills, who believe in you. Um, who find you, you know, really talented, not somebody who's just like, oh, it's, I think it's sexy to invest in a restaurant. I'm going to give you this money. You want them to say, hey, I ate in your restaurant. I've been your regular for however many years. Like, I'm, I love what you're doing in particular because those sort of people, I think, are more inclined to, to be patient with the process, which everybody runs into hiccups. You can't avoid them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think family I'm a little touch and go right. on I've seen it work out like I'm, I'm thinking of yeah, a few too. different people who for whom that was absolutely the way they were going to go yeah. we had Angie Marr on the podcast yeah. and she did this with family and I know her cousin works really closely with her and that's worked out really well because and she actually she uh, as part of a food and wine best new chefs a couple of years ago she was talking about partnerships and saying that it has that built-in trust there so for her it was an ideal situation she also comes from a restaurant family so sure. that worked out really well but then I've seen heartbreak happen uh, with people where it ends up making Thanksgiving terrible or impossible yeah and I do think a lot of this comes down to to be honest the work that I do in the partnership agreement because Mm -hmm. that is your prenup that's your bible and that sets forth and and in various ways as an investor here's your role here's what I'm going to promise you here's what you're going to promise me um this is this is how we're setting forth this relationship, but even family, right? As so long as they're reading the document and know what's in it. Um, and I think you want everybody to understand what's in it. You want this to be a very transparent process. You want to say, hey, this is how I'm going to run this business. This is exactly what I'm going to do. And I'm going to show up and I'm going to be there. I'm going to do it. And to the extent that you're not doing that, even your family member has this document to hold up to say, hey, this is this is on paper. You promised us this is what we're going to get. We're not getting it. Let's have a conversation. Let's sit down. Um, you know, it also lays down the the triggers for maybe getting rid of somebody. You know, mm-hmm. in in the post, you know, me too yeah. moment. I have said to people, I said, let's honestly, when you are partnering with people, let's consider whether you want to build yourself room to remove someone if they do something really heinous. You know, if they're stealing from the company, if you found out they've they've sexually assaulted someone or whatnot, um, maybe you want to, at the very start of this, it, we'll all agree that that's, that's basis for getting somebody out. Yeah. Is that in most contracts? Or I, I'm sure it's built in now to a lot of... It's not built into a lot of documents. It's just, it's not. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of this is people saying, hey, if I'm going to put my energy into building this, I don't want anybody to take it away from me, period. And, Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, I have to say, hey, why don't you have the conversation? Why don't you think honestly about what you would do if X, if the worst happened and -and so-and-so did X or so-and-so did Y, let's think about it. And, and let's, you know, put yourself in those shoes. And I, almost all of my clients now will agree yeah, you know what? This is what we want. We don't want to have to go to court, spend $100,000 to get somebody out of here if 
if if they've you know done something that is injurious to the to the operation you know to the restaurant yeah i've i've seen this happen a fair amount you know over the course of the last you know mm-hmm. year and a half i i think it's been when all of this stuff really started yeah. coming to light i think it probably you know especially kicked off with john besh and then you know mario batali ken mm-hmm. friedman like all all of these things and I know that some of those have been really tricky to unknot. I know that yeah. for, uh, you know, Batali to, you know, be removed from the equation took a very, very long time. Yeah. Um, and I saw actually in this last week that they are selling Eska to uh, Dave Pasternak, which mm-hmm. is really great because, you know, that has been his yeah. baby for a long time. And for people who aren't familiar with this, it's the, it's the fantastic seafood restaurant that was part of the Batali empire and, and Bastianich and, and uh, the driving force behind it has always been the chef who is heavily invested in sustainable seafood and all that and um the news uh came out this week that it's he's it's going to be his mm-hmm. i mean that's that's a lovely thing but i can't imagine the unnodding that had to happen with something like that yeah i mean because when i am building these documents and i'm sure when mario's attorney built these documents the person who's doing all of the work the chef who knows how to run the business usually gets you know, carte blanche to make all of those business decisions. And maybe the investors say, you know what, there's a little thing, there are some things that we want to have a say on, but they're major items. Selling all of the company assets, signing a new lease, um, you know, just changing your business plan entirely, you know, from going to to a sit-down restaurant to going to fast casual, uh, borrowing a lot of money. Those are the things the investors care about. But, you know, honestly, in in many cases, they're like, you know what you're doing, I'm just going to let you do what you do. Um, But even when you sign a lease... Uh, the landlord wants consent. If you're, if mm-hmm. if if people are switching more than a, more than a majority of the shares of the company, the landlord says, "Hey, I want approval over that." So there, it's it's not just the investors who get a say; it's also your landlord who gets a say. And um, you know, it's obviously a much bigger proposition to get all of those people on board to get him Mario to agree at to leave and at what price. Um, <laughs> what price? If you don't set that forward, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? But in my operating documents, I, I try very hard to say, hey, if we ever need to figure out what these shares are worth, this is how we're going to do it so that you can't fight about the how. Because, you know, that's what keeps you in court forever. You fight about how you figure out the price and then you get a price and then they don't like the price and they go to court because they didn't like this appraiser or that appraiser. If you can agree in advance, this is fair. Um, you save yourself a lot of money in the in the back end in the event something does go wrong and somebody does need to leave for whatever reason. Yeah. Uh, it's, let's talk about being part of a restaurant group. Mm-hmm. Um, is that a wise decision for, uh, for a chef to do to be part of an established group? What Actually, what does a restaurant group do? Um, they own more than one restaurant. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's all it takes. Because I'm thinking like a Union Square hospitality versus like maybe in a a smaller market, somebody has one restaurant, they decide to open another. That's considered a restaurant group. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think, I don't know if there's a hard and fast line here. You know, people talk about things in threes. Um, I I think the, the, the difference on a technical basis is that that restaurant groups usually have their own internal infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Maybe they have an in-house events person, maybe they have an in-house PR person, maybe they have an in-house lawyer, and they've got this sort of contained unit of people who are salaried who do work across all the restaurants. So um, the the financial metrics of how the, the business runs is, is different among restaurant groups. They find 
ways to create efficiencies because they can do you know, bulk work across restaurants. Like payroll. Yeah. And so it's easier for, for bigger restaurants. They can order in bulk. They can do all of these things on a larger scale. They save money. And so there is an incentive to keep opening restaurants just so that you can make your margins grow um, with each restaurant that you open. So if you're a chef and you open up something with a restaurant group, so you are brought on basically as a partner. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, Let Us Entertain You in Chicago oh, yeah. does this. You know, they're obviously this huge corporate conglomerate, but um, all of, you know, many of the restaurants are very different and unique. And some of, most of them, there's just only one. And they usually have like a partner who it was that partner's vision to do it. I don't know how much equity that partner has. I don't know if it's 5%. I don't know if it's 10%. I don't know if it's like substantial. I'm assuming it's not the majority. That's just my guess. Um, you know, maybe they work their way up to that. But when you're involved in a restaurant group, you don't have the leverage, right? The restaurant group has the leverage. They have the money. You're giving up. You're, what you are getting is a, a, a well-run machine and expertise and staff. What you're giving up is a lot of control, probably. Yeah. Let's talk about yeah. control then. Say so you bring on partners. You're, you're a chef. You're a, 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 the, a creative person within this sure. process. So does it get written into the contract how much creative input that another partner can have? Can they walk in and say, like, you know what? I want a dish named after my dog. Um, that is all, I mean, that is entirely reliant upon what their documents look like. You but know? you can have that. So, so like this person who I have this crazy idea, let's do an all cheese menu or, <laughs> or something like that. What's to stop them from enforcing that? I mean, you know, hopefully the, the chef who got into this partnership agreed that their, their participation was contingent upon them having maybe complete control over the menu subject to uh, them being able to meet certain food cost thresholds, right? It's mm -hmm. fine to say you do whatever you want with the menu, but not if you're spending 50% of our revenues on your ingredients, which means we lose money every single week. Um, so, you know, I, I, there are ways to give the chef partner freedom, but also a way to make an investor feel like you're respecting their dollar. And, mm -hmm. and those things don't have to be at odds with each other. But um, without having that conversation, without setting forth all of that stuff, um, that's why you have the arguments later is because you didn't have the conversation about, hey, I want complete freedom. No, I don't want to have to name a dish after your daughter. Um, have those conversations up front because if you don't have them, that's the kind of thing that a chef will start uh, grinding his teeth and saying, oh, this isn't working out for me. I, I regret it. I, I did this. But that's because maybe they didn't communicate as well before they got, you know, into this together in the first place. So a lot of this is like, trans, you know, transparency, communication. I say that all day, every day. I think that's amazing. I mean, I'm really, it's really driving it home. This is so important to think of every scenario up yes. front and get documentation <laughs> about that. Because otherwise that could be a huge, <laughs> a huge problem. Is you know, it's funny. I talk to a lot of chefs who say that, you know, maybe they're getting sued by an employee, maybe something is happening. And there's this notion that somehow they're living the sweet life, like that they are making money, they're all this kind of stuff. And as we know, that is far from the reality. But it seems like, you know, people have a there's that joke about like, how do you make a million dollars in a restaurant? Like, it's it's I, I'm completely biffing the joke structure here. But it's basically <laughs> like you lose money, you just lose money in restaurants. What would be the incentive for somebody to actually invest in a restaurant? So yeah, I mean, restaurants are not money losing propositions, by and large. Um, if you partner with the right people. So again, this is finding people who know what they're doing, who have passion for what they're doing and giving them the incentive to like put their all into it and to do their best and to be a responsible 
custodian of of the space. So, you know, it's it's again, I think you lose money by by getting into to business with people who just don't know what they're doing or people who aren't talented or, you know, or who are in it for the wrong reasons. Um so, I mean, and and I think I'm speaking I'm a little biased because most of my clients are chefy chef clients. These are people who have Michelin stars and you have beard awards. Of, you have a hell of a list. You yes. Have, do you feel like saying any of the people who you represent are you allowed to do that? Sure, and- sure. I, I mean, we uh, I represent a, a bunch of folks who've been on Top Chef. So Kwame Onwache and Isaac Toops and Kristen Kish. Um you know, a, a lot of I think a lot of chefs who who are have a decent amount of fame have a lot of various kinds of contracts to do, yes, and they end up coming to me because um, because I actually have done enough, I do enough work in the space that I know what like so called market is for the work that they're doing. So a lot of times people call me, say, "Hey, somebody came to me with this. This is what they're offering me," and I'll say, "Oh, that's not well, that's n- not nearly enough money for the work they want you to do. I would propose this instead, and I would propose this structure." Um, so I, I think a lot of sort of named, sort of more famous chefs come to me because I can tell them, "Hey." that dollar amount makes sense or that dollar amount doesn't make sense. And not all lawyers can do that because not all lawyers have like, I guess the, the, enough work in the space to know where those dollars should land. Yeah, it's such an interesting thing. I know I've definitely told people, just talk to Jasmine. Just talk to Jasmine about this, (laughs) especially if they were approached by a reality show of any sort. I remember when Isaac was sort of weighing through, like, should I go on Top Chef? I mean, the reasoning I gave him that I thought it would be good for him is he knows exactly who he is Mm -hmm. and was going to be that on camera and was not going to not be uh, you know have the core values that he does he knows who he is as a chef and so I thought you know he'd be really solid for that is it a good idea for most people to go on a reality show like that oh gosh uh I'm gonna say no uh (laughs) and and why is that well I mean it's um really this is gonna be a person to person thing Mm -hmm. very honestly if you are if you don't have a very even temperament if you are not an extremely cheery person this is not going to be the show for you. I mean, if you have, you know, sort of resting mean face or whatever the thing is, uh, it's just, you know, everybody understands why people make reality television. They do it for a certain amount of drama. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's it's very hard to do these shows. And, of course, you have no control over what they do and what they make you look like. Um, all you can do is control your reaction. But these are extremely stressful situations. Like, you know, they're putting you in, the, in a hot box. You're just sweating like crazy. And unless you know how you work under stress, unless you are can guarantee yourself. Hey, I know I'm going to keep my cool. Hey, I know I'm going to perform. Hey, I know I'm never, I'm not going to snap at people. I'm not going to come off like a a cruel person or a gossipy person or whatever the thing is. If you know who you are and you know you can take it, then yes, do it. It'll put butts in seats. Everybody sees it. People will come to the city to go to your restaurant if you do well enough on these shows. Even if you don't do well enough but are likable, people will come. So, I mean, it's it's a winning proposition for a lot of people, but for a select, I think, group of people, it's, it's, uh, it's not great. And it's a risk. And I'm, a, as a lawyer, I'm inherently anti-risk. So part of me was like, oh, God, it feels bad to do this if you don't know. But like I said, you know, Isaac, obviously. One fan favorite. So. Yeah. You know, he's he's big, jolly. He knows who he is. I mean, Kristen Kish is, is steely. Yeah. You know, she is unmoved. I mean, it's, it's there are certain she people who impre- I think know. She was so impressive on the show, too, because, yeah. like, she, she knows who she is. Like, you know, and at that yeah. point, I think Kwame was figuring some things out, but 
boy, has he yeah. you know, exploded so I, He actually did great on the show. Yeah. Oh, and he, and did he came so, across very likable on no, the show. very, so. very much. But I think he, he was still sort of forming yeah. his vision of some of the food and stuff. Yeah. But yeah, he was absolutely, you know, likable and lovable on, on there. And it's been such a joy to see his evolution uh, from there. Yeah, it's... um. It's wonderful to see. And I have to say, you know, I've known him for a while and, you know, he would call and say, "Eh, I'm thinking about this, thinking about that. Um, But, you know, he's someone that I'm like, oh, God, you know, I I sort of wish I'd been involved with him when he opened his first restaurant. Because I think some of the things that probably happened um, with that situation, I'm like, oh, you know, that's that's my job and that's what I do all day is helping avoid that sort of situation where the people who have the money. Yeah have enough control where they can say, ah, I'm calling, I'm calling this quits right now. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that's, that was sort of unfortunate, but he grew. Oh, I don't, yeah. I don't think he would be where he was without that at no, all. That's... So that was foundational for him. Probably, you know, at the end of the day, He's the right fine. thing happened. <laughs> yeah. But I, I do have to say, you know, that was a, that was a chef investor disagreement. And mm-hmm. those are the things that the partnership agreement is meant to, is meant to police somewhat. Yeah. Um, and without having a good document, you lose control over what is, you know, what many chefs would consider their babies, you know, when they build these things. So it it hurts. Yeah. I mean, this isn't just business. It's personal. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. So we have encountered in the past year and a half uh, more and more situations yeah. where there are problems that have been existing for a very long time mm-hmm. in restaurants and people are actually finally speaking up about them and consequences are occurring. So would you ever be called in for something like a, hey, you know, we have a crisis here. We found out that X person, you know, associated with the restaurant has been, you know, sexually inappropriate or, you know, had some sort of crumb bum behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, so are you brought in on crisis situations? You know, that uh, I always I'm like sort of the first call when that happens for people who I've done all of their corporate work for. But I have to say um, I, I send them straight to someone who is a labor law specialist. I have a couple of folks who I know who do really good work. Um, and I'll say, hey, you know, the person you need to talk to is, is the labor law, you know, expert here. They are the ones who know exactly what behavior, where that falls in line, you know, the Department of Labor, what things you need to be doing. I mean, everybody should have a labor law, you know, a labor lawyer on retainer to make sure that they're doing their wage an hour, you know, to making sure their payroll, making sure their employee manual has all the stuff the employee manual needs in it. Um, because doing a lot of that, that upfront work, um, protects you on the back end. I mean, a good employee manual is worth its weight in gold because if you have the disclosures, this is what we do not allow. Mm-hmm. And it, everybody knows it and everybody signs on the dotted line saying that they knew it's very hard for someone to come back and blame you as the restaurant owner for activity that happened on their floor. Unless, of course, you'd been warned and didn't do anything about it or, or things like that. So, I mean, you can be protected somewhat within these documents, but, you know, especially if you think the case is going to be litigated or you're being investigated by you know, a, a, a city or state agency. Um, that's something that labor lawyers, they do all day. And, you know, they're the ones who are the best at handling that for you. Okay. So, so, so something like a tipping lawsuit, uh, yeah, some, yeah. something like that. I mean, I don't, I don't know if people realize how often restaurants get sued by... Oh, it happens all the time. It is a constant thing. A, uh, you know, it takes like one... I saw a friend go through this where there was one disgruntled employee who had been fired for cause 
but was trying to get together a, a class action suit, was unable to find anybody else to join, <laughs> as it turned out, but still like put a blot on the record yeah. of this particular chef who, as far as they knew, was operating completely above board and you know had the manual and had all the receipts, but it was still like a blot on their uh, on their name. Oh yeah, I tell people all the time. I was like, you're going to get sued a lot. And I was like, if you do everything right, you'll win, but that's not going to prohibit a lawsuit. You get sued, then you have to litigate it, and if you've done everything right. You win and they lose. Um, you know what's pervasive are the ADA, the uh, disabilities um, lawsuits. You know, there are like predatory plaintiff's attorneys who will find somebody in a wheelchair and they say, hey, you're going to be my plaintiff. I don't want to make you some money. And then they have ADA experts just go door to door to door to door and walk in every restaurant. And if you've got a little step up and no ramp, they just file a lawsuit. Whether or not that person has ever tried to walk, you know, come into your restaurant at mm-hmm. all. And um, I actually have a client whose brother is in a wheelchair, comes to the restaurant all the time. He knows there's access, but ADA accessibility means having also um, uh, your your bathroom mirror at a certain height. I mean, it's, it's you know, certain things that you wouldn't necessarily think of just because you can get in and use the, the place doesn't necessarily mean that you are compliant. Yeah. Um, your website, if your website, you know, doesn't have um, the ability to say, hey, you know, uh, this is accessible. You want me to read the copy on this website to you, a lawsuit. So you get sued by it for a lot of things, even if you're really well-meaning and are doing your best, you're going to get sued. Right. Yeah. I mean, Unfortunately. And, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the ADA yeah. stuff to me, because, you know, my mother's disabled. Yeah. And, stuff, and, and I, I know we had run into, uh, you know, a situation where, you know, my parents did where they were staying at a, a place in upstate New York yeah. and they had a dress code. Yeah. And uh, they said, uh, you know, my my dad and they were visiting me. I was like finishing up grad school. My dad said, you know, ahead of time called them and said, well, you know, I know you have this dress code for the dining room yeah. where people have to wear like no gym shoes or whatever. But my wife has a lot of mobility issues and stuff and, and she has to wear, you know, sneakers. And they said, well, she has to eat in her room. Oh, believe me, they heard from my dad. Oh, that's horrendous. <laughs> Isn't that horrifying? That's horrendous. Well, and then they said, you know, hey, the you know, the person who, you know, told you that we're going to have a training meeting with them. And by the way, come back and have a free night. And he's like, I'm never coming back to your place. Are yeah. you kidding me? Yeah. Yeah. So and there's a lot of training aspect, too. I mean, uh, bar service in particular. Um, you know, if you're most people have bars that are too high for people in wheelchairs, right? Yeah. You have to. What you have to do is you have to have a table in your restaurant that is set aside for people who would want to sit at the bar but can't, and that and all your staff has to know this is the table where if somebody who comes in who's disabled who cannot sit at the high seats of the bar, this is where they sit, and they're allowed to get drinks here. It's not a hard thing to do, right? Yeah. But it requires knowing that you have to do that and training your staff to do that. So, you know, making sure you're covered is really important, and labor attorneys do some of that work. There are AD experts who also just come in and do all of that work for you as well. So, I mean, I hate to say this. I mean, it's the proposition is getting more and more expensive, right? You're hiring, mm-hmm. a, a, you know, several different attorneys to do with this work, and then also these ADA consultants, and also this and this and that. Um, you know, so, so I do want people to understand how much work goes into doing this if you ever decide this is something you want to do. It's, you know, horrifying. (laughs) This must be uh, easier for new builds than retrofitting restaurants. Are there sort of clauses for restaurants that already exist, you know, and maybe they've made some accommodations, but is it it sort of different? Do you have to bring uh, things up to compliance? um, You know what? That is, that's a... Yes and no. It really depends on what your space is. Um, it really depends on 
what the certificate of occupancy has been over time. But yes, new builds by and large are, are you know, built with all of the accommodations needed. Um, and also the, the laws are, are a little subjective, right? It's, it's about, make, you know, reasonable accommodation. And, and so, you know, some restaurants, especially in the West Village and really old buildings, um, you know, there's so much they can do. And the state will say, hey, you, I can tell that you've really tried. And we're working with you on this. And no, we're not going to ding you a thousand times because you just have a space that's a small space. But you do have to have a button outside. So somebody from outside, you know, you do have to be able to offer people service to go and things like that. So there are, you know, there are certain, uh, I don't think the state's trying to put anybody out of business, um, you know, with, with all of these laws. And, and, and I think people do their best to try to work through them. Yeah. But it's still a, it's still sort of the Wild West out there as insofar as people are still trying to figure out exactly how they can right. be compliant and what needs to be done. And case law is always changing about what's okay and what's not okay. So yeah. it changes a lot. It's all these things that people don't even know that they need to know. I'm thinking anybody listening to this, do you still want to open a restaurant? Like, no. <laughs> so what are the, some of the most common pitfalls that, that you find for, uh, you know, people opening restaurants? Say it's, you know, they're they're going into, into it. Maybe they want to open their first one. What have you seen happen I all mean, the time? I mean, it's, it's a lot of like city administrative red tape, a lot of when you're building out department of buildings, landmark, if you're in a, a landmarked building, um, you're you're having to submit things through LPC, then through the DOB. What is, what is LPC? The Landmarks Preservation Committee. <laughs> Learning so many things today. Yeah. So, so you know, it's a lot of, hey, I, I found this space. I mean, the, the worst thing you can do is sign a lease and, like, not having had talk to a liquor lawyer to find out whether it's even possible to get You just said a, a liquor, liquor lawyer. lawyer. Wait, tell me about a liquor lawyer. Yeah, somebody who honestly gets people their liquor licenses. But, but you know, there are regulations about where you can and cannot get licenses. And every, every neighborhood has a different community board and the ease of getting a liquor license in neighborhood varies from neighborhood to neighborhood. So if you sign a lease and don't even talk to a liquor attorney first, then all of a sudden you find out you can't get, you can't, you know, you can't sell, you know, all those cocktails you thought you were going to sell. Maybe you get beer and wine, but uh, alcohol is a revenue driver and the margins, the profit margins on alcohol are very good. So it's restaurants cannot survive. Um, most of them cannot survive without serving some sort of, you know, alcoholic beverage at some point. So, you know, it's, it's a lot of not doing your due diligence. That's what gets you in trouble or signing in a building that is a very old building that it requires so many hoops to jump through to do the work that you need to be doing. It just can take forever, like forever to get the permits approved and the work done, the work done right. Um, you know, researching what the building looked like in 1902 in order to restore it, X, Y, and Z. Um it's, you know, a lot of work. So most of the, I think the hardship comes from the actual construction, the actual space and dealing with that for the most part. Oh my goodness. And I'm actually remembering there was a law and order plot about <laughs> the person from the city who got people their uh, liquor licenses and was taking kickbacks and got murdered or <laughs> something like this. So this is, this is all extremely yeah. real. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, let's talk for a minute about like the, the dissolution of uh, of sort of a relationship, a partnership yeah. in this, because, you know, we see it play out in the news and the unnodding of it is, you know, really painful. What yeah. do people need to know? Like when they're going into business with somebody who they've cared about for a long time and it's just, you know, clearly not going to work. What have you seen happen? What are some things you can do to forestall? Because, I mean, I know there are a million legal things. Is there any sort of emotional prep or, you know, or guides you can have for people? Yeah, you know, I think we touched on this earlier, but I think the, where most of the fights come in, well, it, it comes in two places. If there's more than one restaurant, maybe you fight 
about your assets. You fight about which restaurant, which person gets, you know, if there's mm-hmm. two partners and they're doing this. Um, but the, the fight, by and large, is usually what is it worth? You know, there's always one person who's willing to buy out the other person who can raise the money to buy out the other person. But at what price? And how do you figure yeah. that out? And people fight for a long time uh, about what value to put on that in order to pay somebody what the the shares might conceptually be worth um, in order for you to, to buy that and keep operating. So, uh, you know, it's that that's most of the problem is, hey, you know, if you're stopped getting along, um, there's probably always almost one person who's saying, we can't both do this. I'm, I'm happy to be the one that's out, but I want you to show me the money to do that. And then how? How do we figure out what that money looks like? Um, conversely, you know, you can agree ahead of time. If, if somebody has an, an established brand, you know, maybe um, – you're a chef who's open a few places and you have a brand and that brand is going to be put on the front door of the restaurant, you can agree in advance. If we ever break up, so to speak, you're agreeing that I get to keep the space because this is my brand. Or you'll agree to take the brand off the restaurant. Maybe you can keep the lease and all the equipment in it, but you're going to have to change the name and you're going to have to change the menu. But um, those are conversations I always make people have with each other before they get into the partnership, you know, into the partnership realm. Especially I do a lot of folks who are sort of... um, restaurant adjacent people who are doing PR people who are doing other social media and I'll say hey if you're partnering with this person when you divorce do you you know are you keeping the clients you brought in what do you do with the clients you both brought in let's talk about that because that's the ugliest part and if we can agree now about how to handle it we spare you a lot of anguish later yeah because I'm thinking of like you know a case in New Orleans where somebody lost their name it was the name of the restaurant and yeah. it was owned by a group and they yeah. lost their actual name yeah don't ever put your name on a restaurant that you don't have the majority I, I was I want to say majority ownership but it's really control you can have a, a minority of ownership but have uh control like operating control so yeah. yeah never put your name on something if you don't have the last word in that space ever. It's like getting a tattoo. Don't do it. It's like getting a tattoo of somebody you're dating. Yeah. Also don't do that. <laughs> also don't do the, that. The name of your LLC on your arm. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's such sage advice. And yeah. I want to say there, there's a thing that you do that I think is incredibly cool that you, um, especially sort of for women chefs, get them great partnerships. Yeah. In, and you're looking for that. Can you talk about that part of the business? Yeah. You know, it's I, I work more and more with, with developers who are are understanding that good restaurants are real revenue centers. You know, for as many people say, oh, restaurants are such a risky, you know, gamble. There's a whole other subset of people saying, hey, I'm going to build this fancy apartment, but nobody's going to want to live here if there's not a good restaurant nearby. Um, So you've got a lot of people who do care about having something good in the premises. But, you know, again, if you're going to work out maybe some sort of um, preferential rent situation, if the person who owns a building is going to pay for the restaurant, they're going to have a certain amount of control at that restaurant, right? They're going to own all that equipment, or especially in the hotel space. I do a lot of work Mm -hmm. in the hotel space. If you partner with a hotel owner or hotel manager – by and large, you have to agree, I don't own any of this. I get that it's your building. Your priority is the running of this hotel and these people. I'm I'm understanding this and I am going to work with you. And so, you know, those partnerships um, can be difficult because it's the chef sort of, I think, s- making their ego maybe – you know, right. it's sort of subservient to like the the larger idea of the hotel and the brand and 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 that sort of work. But um, I'm in the room now with a lot more developers and a lot more hotel owners, and they're looking for amazing people to like run the food and beverage at the hotels. And I'm in the position now where I'm like, hey, 
I want this to be, you know, somebody who doesn't have a hundred of these already. I want this to maybe maybe somebody new. And to be honest, women and people of color are mm-hmm. just not offered these opportunities as often as as other people are. And so I am trying very hard to say, hey, you know, this person's wonderful. They have five restaurants. They're really good at what they do. And, you know, this would be their first hotel gig or, hey, you know, um, Nashville is wonderful, but they have no X cuisine here. And I have a chef who does this work wonderfully. So, you know, I am trying to find nice partnerships for clients that I have that make sense, but that are also really good opportunities for chefs. Um, so, you know, I'm because I'm, 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 quote unquote, in the room where it happens, I'm, I'm doing my best to, to bring, I think, a little more diversity to the table where I can. Yeah, because I, I know it is very hard, especially for women and people of color, to get capital. Yeah, um, it, it is. And what would you advise, say, you know, you're a chef who, you know, is a woman, a person of color, and you've dreamed of opening a restaurant, and you're not going to maybe get some of the financial, you know, stuff that, uh, you know, white guy with track record because he's had access to this stuff all mm-hmm. along. You're mm-hmm. just as talented. You're, you know, you're, you're just as that and you have a vision. What would you say to somebody like that who is having this dream of, of having a place? You know, it's it's funny because um, I, I, among my clients, I can definitely see a divide in as it relates to fund to fundraising, I see a divide in that, um, you know, I have some clients who are very confident, you know, maybe some would say arrogant, and they're <laughs> not afraid to go out and say, hey, I, I want this money and whatever, you know, sort of not being afraid to lose it. And I and I feel like some of my clients, especially my my female clients, are a little less comfortable asking for money, um, a little less comfortable maybe doing it confidently. So, I, I mean, I really do think you need to own it. You need to have your vision. You need to own it. If the numbers work, you need to go to people. And I think um, Jen Pelka is really good at this. She has a Riddler in San Francisco, and she's opening um, a Riddler in New York. But she's like and, – and almost all of her investors are women too, which is amazing because for every deal that I do, I'm lucky if in a list of 10 investors there's one woman. I mean, it's – you know, women tend to not invest in these projects. So it's, maybe they're a little more risk-averse as well on, on the investment side. Um, but Jen is basically like, hey, I built something that's amazing. This is how much money I make. You should consider yourself lucky, you know, if, if, if you are involved and people just jump, you know. But, but, but that's her yeah. having the oomph to say, hey, this is great and you you should get on this bandwagon. Not like, you know, hey, I've, I've got this thing that I'm thinking about, but I don't know. I, you know, or, you know, I'd rather just raise money for family or I'm just going to talk to the bank about loans. Um, and, you know, part of this is maybe investors not taking as seriously as they should, you know, you know, women um, or people of color. You know, maybe they've had bad experiences in rooms, but I think that that should not be a deterrent to continuing to, you know, try to advertise for yourself, try to you know, market for yourself and trying to sell something that is, is your vision. You know, that shouldn't hold you back. You should keep doing that because the more people you meet and the more people you ask, the better, the closer you get to yes. Right. Yeah. I always say channel your inner frat boy. Mine's name is Chet. (laughs) And I think Chet gets what Chet wants and, you know, Chet wouldn't even think that nobody would invest in Chet, you know, and I do that and then I have to go hide for a while after I do this. But it's hard, right? It's not, you know, and I, I don't want to, you know, group people into into segments like that. You know, I'm sure I definitely have, you know, white male clients who yeah. are also afraid to ask for that money. But I think across the board, if you come off as confident and assertive, and if you have the numbers to back it up, and if you have the the passion behind it, um, it you know it, it is a much easier sell. But you really have to ask a lot yeah. and not to not be afraid to ask. Yeah. What is your single uh, biggest? 
uh, piece of advice for somebody who wants to open a restaurant? Oh, hire a lawyer. <laughs> I'm biased, but yes, hire a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. And having hire a few lawyers. Oh, yeah. Now, having seen uh, friends go through myriad stuff, having been the other one on the other end of that yeah. freaked out phone call. Yeah. I'm going to concur with Jasmine on this. Definitely. <laughs> well, so you, you spend a lot of time looking out for everybody's interests and doing all this stuff. Uh-huh. What is the selfish thing you want for yourself? This is a question I love to ask. This is our Oprah moment. Say it out of using the secret. Say Because uh, I'm increasingly believing in saying it out loud, the thing you want. What do you want for you? Um, you know, I've, my business has grown a, a decent amount in the time that I, I've started it. And I don't want to say that I'm maxed out, but I am at the place where I think that I could use a little help and it's sort of intimidating thinking about making that expenditure hiring that person also I'm a control freak Virgo there's a certain amount of work that I'm like really terrified to let out of my hands um so you know I really would like to in the next year maybe find someone that I can work with on some of this stuff and uh find a way to maybe do as much work but maybe not as much myself all the time because right now it's me I'm my only employee so I am doing the work all day every day yeah dear universe make Jasmine a mogul (laughs) (laughs) I love that so I don't know if you're familiar with the questions the the we got five rapid fire questions okay what is the what is your comfort food oh french fries from where in particular um I my fa- one of some of my favorite French fries in the whole world actually were the French fries that Ten Ho was making at uh, that restaurant that Gabe Stolen <laughs> opened in Chelsea, which is like forever ago. Um, I mean, I'm not anti uh, McDonald's French fry either, but I like them to be thin. I like them to be crunchy, maybe even a little overcooked. I you know yeah. what I had McDonald's fries uh, in the fairly recently and they weren't as good as I remember. I didn't know if they'd changed the fat. I don't know. Maybe I just got a not awesome batch, but I love that format, that like thin crispy. Kind but of everywhere one. I go, I'll order a french fry. I don't always love them, but I always don't yeah, mind them. Yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll have a few. <laughs> yeah. I'll try. I'll try. Next time we go out, we're getting some fries. Yes. Maybe some tots. They, oh, I love a tater tot. <laughs> or an O-ring. <laughs> as John Winterman calls them, an O-ring. Uh, what is the last meal that you had that made you emotional? Um, I, at Adamix, I went to Adamix and, um, you know, I was just tired of everybody saying how good it was. And, you know, we Pete, have- Pete Wells was like, whatever top meal of, of my year. And I was like, Oh, I'm going to have to go to this place, aren't I? And I, you know, went and we did the wine pairing and it was like almost a spiritual experience. Actually, there was something about it that was really comforting, really interesting, really delicious, um, but not stuffy. Uh, and like I said, the wine was incredible. He had like a Coravin. He was pouring stuff that was like, you know, from 1975. And you're like, this is incredible. And I hated how much I loved it because it was a tremendously expensive meal. Yes. And, you know, there's so a, expensive. <laughs> there, there's a reason that JP was one of our food and wine best new chefs. But I, I know yeah, I'm so good. I really really want to go. I have a lot of dietary restrictions and, you know, if I can get those worked out and they don't do substitutions, which I totally yeah. understand and honor. But um, yeah, we also, Jasmine and I have a mutual friend who sells a lot of her uh, products that she imports from Korea to there. And I want to, want to support everybody as soon as I can, but yeah, Adamix. It was so good. <laughs> I, I hate how good it was. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love it. Well, what is the last meal that somebody made for you in their home? Um, that's a really good. Oh, um, I, I have a, a, a couple of friends from San Francisco and they made the Zuni 
roast chicken. It's so good. Yeah, which was incredible. And they did a very good job. They're, you know, they're people who really enjoy to cook. They make every meal I have at their house is tremendous, but that's what they made the last time. And it was wonderful. Yeah, that cookbook is extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, R.I.P. Judy Rogers. Thank you for everything you gave to the universe. There's that sage walnut pesto that is just one of my so favorite, good. favorite things. So I usually ask this question of chefs. So I'm going to tweak it around. I usually So I usually ask them, what living musician would you want to cook for? And what would you cook for them? What living musician would you want to go out to a restaurant with? Oh, my gosh. Um I've been listening. I mean, it's it's funny because I listen to a lot of like jazz, but like older jazz. So I, I feel like I don't listen to that many living musicians mm-hmm. uh, these days. Um, but uh, Cecile McLaurin Salvant is a, a jazz singer who's wonderful, who I've seen a few times, and she seems really sweet. So maybe her, just because I'm a fan. Where would <laughs> yeah. you take her? Um. Oh gosh. I mean, Barbudo. <laughs> oh, oh, golly. <laughs> it's, uh, and I, for, for, and the reason I'm oh gollying is for if people are listening to this and they don't know, it's closing soon. And hopefully there was a rumor on Eater the other day that maybe they had a lease out somewhere else or okay. I don't know. Okay. All the fingers crossed. Crossing fingers, yeah. <laughs> we actually have a great big piece um, coming up. I think it's in the July issue that's a round table of super smart people talking mm-hmm. about what Barbudo um means and meant Mm -hmm. and uh yeah you're gonna hear a whole lot about barbuda from us coming up and let's say you have five uninterrupted minutes for Mm self-care what do you do you're you have a stressful job you're a lawyer what do you do for just five minutes I, you know, I'm someone who like did not understand that I should be wearing sunscreen my whole life and sort of in the last few years have gotten on the skincare bandwagon. So I really like your skin looks great. Thanks. I really like all the sprays and the serum. So sometimes when I have a minute, you know, I work from home, I'll just like wipe my face down and spritz myself and throw some sort of goo on it. And it makes me feel very cool and sort of moisturized and makes me feel like I'm, you know, taking care of my my body in a very small way in a very small amount of time. I so. love that. <laughs> so our lesson today, hire a lawyer, hire a lawyer, hire a lawyer. <laughs> and I want to thank uh, Jasmine Moy so much for being our guest today. If people want to find you, I know your social handles are Jasmine Moy. Um, what's On your website? Yeah. What's your website? I'm restaurantlawyer.nyc. Yeah. Yeah. Restaurantlawyer.nyc. Very easy. Yeah. Please hire her or an affiliate in uh, in, in your city and get your ass protected. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Thank you so much to our producers, Jennifer Martinick and Alicia Cabral. Thanks to Douglas Wagner for our delightful theme song. Jasmine, did you know he wrote the theme song? I did. <laughs> He's so talented. He really is. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend, write a review or rate us. Those stars and those comments make other people able to find us. It's algorithm stuff, but it really, really matters. If there is something you would like us to talk about or a guest you'd like to hear from, please let us know. You can find me on Twitter at Kitten with a Whip. Find out more about the show and catch up on all the episodes at foodandwine.com and Food and Wine's YouTube page. Thanks for listening and take good care of yourself till the next time and get a lawyer. <laughs>